0: in a new sermon series, we'll be looking at various passages in these five weeks together on the doctrines of grace. We see today on page four an outline in the bulletin, and we begin in Genesis chapter one. That doesn't mean we'll read the whole Bible today, <laughs> but we begin, we begin in Genesis one. Fickert said something about that, didn't he? Male and female, he created them. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sins. Romans 8, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. They have beautiful, bold colors They are almost perfectly symmetrical. They bloom in the spring. There's a festival for them in Pella, Iowa. What are they? Tulips. Over these next five weeks, we're going to be talking about tulips. Now, what in the world does that mean? We're looking at the doctrines of grace. Some of you have heard this acronym TULIP, or you've heard of the five points of Calvinism. The acronym itself didn't actually get talked about much until the 1960s, the five points of Calvinism were not themselves taught by John Calvin in this kind of tulip form. It's important we understand that. So this acronym actually may be very confusing to some. It may actually be frustrating to others, or it might be kind of mysteriously curious to a third set, The label Calvinism came into use around 1558. That term itself might kind of set off some things in your head. It came into use when the Lutheran churches and the Calvinist churches, who themselves were following the teachings of John Calvin, began to discuss the Lord's Supper. Calvin never wanted his name associated like this. So the question is not, what did John Calvin teach? That's why this name can kind of be confusing. The question is, what does the Bible teach? Broadly speaking, Calvinism refers to doctrine for life in a dark world. Specifically, these five points are talking about the doctrines of grace. This is not a summary of Reformed theology. This is not even a small part of Reformed theology. I mean, it is a small part, but not even compared to the bigger. It's it's much more than this. But why is this important? Well, it's important because these points talk about crucial doctrines in the Bible. Tulip. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement or definite redemption. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. The five points can really be boiled down to one. Kids, if you're wondering, what do we believe at this church? We believe God saves Sinners, from beginning to end, whole and entire, past, present, and future, salvation is the work of the sovereign, triune God. From its eternal counsel, to its provision through the work of Christ the Son, to the application by God the Spirit. The Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, the Spirit applies it. It is authored and accomplished by the triune God. That's what we want to see here. And this is important because of a number of things. We'll look at two of them here briefly today. What this is telling us is all all glory and praise belongs to God. That's the first reason why this is important. The other reason is this. If salvation depends upon the free choice of the sinner, if it's a free choice in which we must ourselves persevere, If it is not sovereignly designed, graciously secured, irresistibly applied by God himself, then our salvation hangs by the weakest of threads. So it's those twin themes, if you're wondering why, praise be to God and our assurance in the gospel built up. That's what we want to consider in terms of how this applies. We look then and an overview of redemptive history, creation, fall, redemption, which Calvinism loves to show the scriptures to teach. But we begin with a background to the synod. Long before the Son of God became man, the people who lived in the lowlands, today they're called the Dutch, I'm not Dutch, just in case you wondered. Nothing wrong with being Dutch, we love the Dutch. They lived in spiritual darkness. That reminds us there is no culture at any time, in any place, anywhere that is born like more enlightened to God. We are all born dead in our sins. Every culture, every people, we all need the gospel. 700 years after the birth of Christ, missionaries brought the gospel to the lowlands. One of the missionaries was martyred. 800 years later, God brought the Reformation to the lowlands through the teachings of Martin Luther. The Reformation is a back to the Bible movement, the recovery of the gospel. Many Dutch people believed by the grace of God. And as they believed the gospel and trusted Christ for their salvation, persecution increased. The Spanish Inquisition began in 1546. And in the midst of war, The church grew. William of Orange and the sea beggars helped in the fight. And by 1563, this Dutch church already had two confessions of faith, which wasn't limited to Holland, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. But some of the teachings of the Word of God in these days were under attack. Much like Jude reminds us in his epistle, we are to contend for and defend the faith. Paul opposed the legalists. Athanasius opposed Arius. Augustine opposed Pelagius. Luther opposed Erasmus, a Dutch scholar who taught that man's will is free to choose for or against God. And now in the 1600s, Trouble arose from a man named Jacob Arminius. Arminius was born in 1559. John Calvin died five years after that. As a boy, his father was killed in the Dutch revolt against Spain. His mother was killed by soldiers who attacked their town. He was educated at Leiden. He went on and got more education at Geneva, studied under Beza, who was the successor to John Calvin. He was ordained as a pastor in 1588. He served a church in Amsterdam for 15 years. When he was asked to defend the truths of the doctrines of grace against some opponents, he began to study and he sided with his opponents. More concerns began to arise in the years when he was put into a position at the University of Leiden as a professor. But as Robert Godfrey says, these concerns were difficult to evaluate because Arminius never published anything in his lifetime. He began to preach against predestination. He began to deny that Paul was a Christian in Romans 7. He attended a conference to discuss his views. He became ill, and he died in 1609 at the age of 49. In 1610, his followers, the Remonstrants, published a protest against the Reformed teachings on the doctrines of grace, and they had five points. The five points of the Arminians, or the Remonstrants, say that they believed in conditional election, universal atonement, complete depravity, resistible grace, and uncertainty about the perseverance of the saints. Terms matter. Words matter. The churches needed to respond to this disagreement. Eight years later, 1618, for the first time since 1586, the Dutch government called for a national synod. And in November of 1618, over 100 pastors, professors, and elders from Holland, Germany, Switzerland, and England, met at the Synod of Dort. It was the greatest and most ecumenical gathering of Reformed churches ever held. Arminius' followers arrived late to the Synod. They didn't answer questions about their own views, and the Synod president, Johannes Bogerman, I love that name, Bogerman, dismissed them for their failures to cooperate in the proceedings. So they were gone by January. The synod continued until May, a six-month synod. And church meetings run kind of on dog ears, so five minutes in a church meeting is like five hours in real life. (laughs) The canons of Dort were what they responded with. Five points in response to the five points of the Arminians. So that's where the five points come from. And they're not arranged according to TULIP, it's all tip. The first head is talking about unconditional election because that's where the Arminians went with their teachings. Along with the Heidelberg Catechism, the canons of Dort and the Belgic Confession are a part of what's called the three forms of unity. And those of you who are members here know these things and love them. Those who are visitors, maybe you've never heard of them. We believe these things to be biblical. That's why we confess them. Every church, every Christian has a creed. The question is, is our creed grounded in the authority of Scripture and tested according to the faith once for all delivered to the saints? You might wonder, why is this important, The Arminian challenge to Calvinism was not about minor issues. A rejection of what the remonstrance taught was and still is necessary to preserve the biblical teaching of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The problem of sin is so deep, it requires a doctrine of grace that is sovereign, that is effective. It must be irresistible, Robert Godfrey says, because those lost in sin would always resist grace. This is the heart of salvation. Faith itself is not a work that receives what it deserves. It's a gift that rests in the work of another Christ. God planned from eternity this salvation. And the synod... Realized these are not minor issues. The Synod was, in fact, by the grace of God, saving the Reformation. The Synod realized as well that there are minor issues. Not every theological point is equally important, so they made that proper discernment. And the goal of all this is not a game, it wasn't about scoring points, it wasn't saying, Well, we won, you lost. The Reformers rightly understood that truth and theology is enlivening by the Spirit. It's sanctifying. It's a crucial element of communion with God. Why is this important? Because the views of Arminius and his followers are still widely taught today. Christian Smith says that religion in America is summarized as moralistic, Therapeutic deism, that the church in America is reaping the whirlwind, Michael Horton says, of the seeds sown by its revivalist legacy. What is that? Pragmatism, consumerism, self-help moralism, narcissism, and they're all symptoms of a disease called Pelagianism, which teaches that we're not born sinful. the fatal accommodation to self-help religion always begins with an unbiblical view of sin. These are some of the reasons we want to talk about this, loved ones, as a church. Second, where do the canons begin? Well, in the third head of doctrine, they begin with creation in the image of God. They don't start with original sin. Why is that? Sometimes in your life, you listen and you say, I'm hearing something I've never thought of before. Ever. That happened to me this week. My wife and I were outside. She says to me, oh, I've I've got an idea. I'm wondering, what's your idea? I wish, she said, I wish the mall was opened earlier. I said, can I use this illustration? She said, yes. She said, yes. I have never had that thought before. Never in my mind have I wished... The mall was open earlier. There's all sorts of other things I thought, but never never that. The canons of Dort might be brand new to you. It might be like me in the mall. You have never even knew this existed. Or it might be something you've thought about a long time. Either way, we want to see why this matters for life. Calvinism teaches a paradox. Simultaneously, God is one and triune. Christ is divine and human. God is sovereign. We are responsible. And also in the view of human nature. No theological system, Horton says, has been more affirming of this world and human nature while at the same time being so profoundly struck by the misery of our fallen existence. You see those two things together? This tragic character of our corrupt existence is measured by the height from which we have fallen and the glorious future that awaits us at Christ's return. Why does this matter? Because humans are not rotten from the beginning. Shakespeare said to err is human. The Bible says to err is a result of human fallenness. Nothing is wrong with the manufacturer, or with the product. It's not true that the essence of humanity is sinful before the fall. Genesis 1, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Kids, every human body has 37 trillion cells. Each one of your cells, children, has a coded database larger than an encyclopedia. If you took mom and dad's blood vessels out of them, children, and laid them out in a line, do you know how far that line would stretch? 100,000 miles. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But how did God make you? The Bible says, in his image, from the dust of the ground... We are dust and we are also made in God's image. Dust, we're not God. And a lot of the problems in our life are when we play God or want to be God. But dignity and value, you're made in God's image. God made every creature according to their kinds. Humans alone are made in the image of God. Never before did God bring a creature forth like this. Adam and Eve were made perfect in true holiness, righteousness, to reflect God, like the reflectors on your bicycle, children, reflect light. There was nothing wrong in Adam and Eve. They enjoyed God. They communed with God. You and I, made in God's image, means as well that we share in God's attributes. We are personal as God is personal, God is covenantal. The triune God is eternally in personal fellowship. So also, male and female are created as personal beings. We are complementary. We need each other. We're covenantal beings. We can't live alone. Not entirely. Even if someone is single and lives alone, you're not totally isolated. We cannot live apart from life in the church. The church is our family. Maybe you're an orphan. Maybe you have no other family. You have the church as your family. We're created for fellowship. We cannot isolate one another. Church can't be done just through a screen. It's the coming together, the encouraging of each other, and the fact that we get on each other's nerves sometimes. That's good for us. That's helpful by the Spirit of God for us in our sanctification. We are interdependent on each other. No lone ranger. We're made in God's image. Adam was not an animal. Adam didn't evolve from an animal. He's a unique creature of God, a historical person. He was called by God to be a steward of creation. So are we. The fact that you're made in God's image means we don't worship creation, nor do we trash it or exploit it. By being made in God's image, you have eternity set in your hearts. Our neighbors, from the atheist to the missionary, are all created in God's image. There's a dignity of every person that's been made. Every person is an act of God. Life begins at conception. So what is the unborn? The unborn is a child, a human person, made in God's image, no matter how small. That's what Horton here's a Who said, right? That's true, no matter how small. But we don't disregard life after it's been born. From the womb to the nursing home and everything in between, human life has value. And is to be respected from every tribe, every color of skin, every nation, every people. the fact that God has written eternity on our hearts means there actually is no such thing as a true atheist. The law is written here. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but nobody will be able to say in the day of judgment, "I wasn't given enough information." It's a weighty. A dangerous thing to be made in God's image. We are accountable to a holy and just God. Kids, you have a soul that will never die. Your soul, mom and dad, babies, elderly people, is more valuable than all the money of the world. It's patterned after God's image, it resembles the kind of being God is. Men and women, boys and girls, You don't just possess the image. There's not one part of you that's the image. You are the image of God. Body, soul, mind, intellect, imagination, emotions. This is seen in how you work. God himself worked six days, rested the seventh. Your calling is to reflect God in that. God wasn't tired, but Adam was in the covenant of works with a job to do. You have a vocation to do. A calling. One calling is not more holy than another. The work of a missionary is not more holy than the work of a janitor. You're calling to be a policeman, or a homemaker, or a politician, or a businessman, or a teacher, or someone who cares for your elderly parents, or someone who takes care of your children who are struggling in different areas of life and and you're, you're loving them and you're a student at work. All these things are your calling. To be a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a friend, a sibling, a coworker, a church member. These are your callings, loved ones. Or to pursue them diligently. You wonder maybe, kids, as you grow up, what are you going to be called to do? Well, where's God gifted you? How's God formed you? How's God kind of wired you? What do you enjoy doing? What could you do that God has gifted you in that would be a benefit and a blessing to others? How would this work glorify God? All of this is tied in with being made in God's image. As we work, we also rest. You image God and you mimic God when you rest. In fact, we won't properly work unless we properly rest. Rest. We rest by remembering each Sunday, Sabbath day, the first day of the week, the day of Christ's resurrection is the day of heaven breaking in on earth. This is a colony of heaven on earth. It's a foretaste of what is to come and we're gathered here out of joy and delight in what God has done for us and in who we are for each other. We're here to encourage each other. We're here to remember, to point each other to Jesus. We are in this way, reflecting God as we rest. But you know, there's frustration in work. A runner once said, as he was about to run the 100 meter dash, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. There's a work under the work. People are often looking for approval, significance, security, identity. Why is this frustrated? Why are people tempted to laziness or workaholism or something in a combination of both? Because we live in a fallen world. Second, from creation to the fall, Adam went from being crowned with glory and honor to being naked and ashamed. We read it in Romans 5. Sin entered the world through one man. Death through sin. Death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Adam broke the covenant of works. He's the federal head, the representative of all humanity. When Adam sinned, his nature... His condition, his guilt, his debt is now ours. Sin is not a behavior, first and foremost. It's a condition. When it's a behavior, that's where we get self-righteous. Can you believe that guy? I would never think about that. I would never sin that way. We become very proud Sin is a condition. Sin is first and foremost an offense against a holy God. Sin wreaks havoc in relationships. We are rebels without a cause. Here's what happened theologically, as Steve Lawson says. Adam sinned. He's the first man. His transgression and guilt was immediately imputed, transferred to all mankind, men and women, boys and girls who have ever lived at any time in history except for Jesus. By Adam's one act of disobedience, Romans 5, he became morally polluted in every part of his being. Mind, affections, body, and will. By this sin, death came into the world. Adam's fellowship with God was broken. His guilt and corruption are transmitted to his children and to their children, and so every person who's been born. Apart from grace, our minds are darkened by sin, unable to understand the truth. Our hearts are defiled, unable to love the truth. Our bodies are dying, progressing to death. Our wills are dead, unable to choose God. No one is seeking after God. We are not only totally depraved, but total inability. Romans 8. The mindset in the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. John six sixty five, Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father." No one. That's universal. R.C. Sproul teaches us an English lesson here, kids. Do you remember this from English? The word can is often mistaken for may. Teacher, can I sharpen my pencil? She says to you, I'm sure you can, and you also may. (laughs) May suggests permission. Can has to do with ability. No human can run 100 miles an hour. No one has the ability to come to me, Jesus says, it is impossible unless they're drawn by the Father. The leopard cannot change his spots. All who are sinning are slaves to sin, John 8. Whatever overcomes a person, they're enslaved to this. Total depravity means we are born enslaved to sin. What is sin? Well, it's, evil is not a creative power of itself. It's a corruption of a good thing God made. Satan can't create, but he can corrupt. Here's Horton again. There are horrible misunderstandings of this doctrine total depravity. It does not mean utter depravity. It does not mean every person is as bad as they possibly could be. It does not mean every person here has acted out on every sinful desire or impulse of the heart. It does not mean that people don't do things that are civically good and helpful to their neighbor. Unbelievers, as well as believers, do good things, not in the sight of God, not for salvation, but things that we say, yeah, that nurse was really generous. She really helped me when I was sick. That guy who robbed my house wasn't. There's a distinction there, right? Total depravity is not saying there's no distinction. Rather, it's saying... All of these differences are variations on a spectrum of guilt and corruption. Sin is a condition. It yields the fruit of death. So what happens to the image of God after the fall? There's a tie-in here. The image of God is not obliterated. It's like a mirror that's been cracked, but it remains in every person believer and unbeliever. The more someone sins, the less human they are. And by the gospel, we are renewed in the image of Christ. Here's Horton again. There's a distinction between natural ability and moral ability. When it comes to our fallen condition, we all have the natural ability to think, right? To will, to feel. Our faculties are still there. But the fall has rendered us morally incapable of doing these things to restore us to God's favor. Why does this matter when it comes to how we live? If we can prove the Bible teaches all men and women after the fall are dead in sin, not just sick, not just injured, That's really the end of the argument as to whether or not God saves us entirely or we cooperate with him and kind of seal the deal ourselves. There was a headline in the news recently, a truck in Wisconsin, no joke, a few weeks ago, went out with the ice house and tried to go ice fishing. You see what the weather's like. There's pictures of the truck Kind of partially submerged. You think, how in the world? We don't want to know. That's not us. We're not kind of partially submerged. We're not drowning. A drowning person can reach out and grab the rope. We are drowned. We are dead in sin. Remember the Princess Bride kids? There's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, there's usually only one thing you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> what does Ephesians say? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Our pre-Christian state is a spiritual graveyard where someone is walking around very much alive physically and excelling in. Wealth and art and music and sports, but spiritually dead. Self-deception is one of the major symptoms of spiritual death. So this person will say, no way, not me, I'm fine. These people are in churches. They always have been. The church is a mixed multitude. So when we pray for God to save unbelievers, we're praying for God to save unbelievers in this church and churches all over this city by the grace of God, to awaken sinners that are dead and deluded, that are blind to the glory of God, with no love for God, that are indulging in the passions of the flesh, that have no ability to respond to God, no desire, no capacity, that are dead, dry bones. Imagine kids going to a cemetery and saying, I've got a life-giving syringe to any corpse that will come out to receive it. You say that sounds crude. That's what's being pictured in Ephesians 2. The person who's dead in sin is dead. He cannot come to God. This is not an issue of intellect or PhD. It's being enslaved. It's the mindset set on the flesh, Romans 8. It's life turned in on itself. Not only that, but those who are dead in sin are children of wrath. There's a man who said to R.C. Sproul, Have you been saved? Sproul says, Saved? Saved from what? The man said, Well, I don't know. Loved ones, what have we been saved from? From enslavement to sin, from death, from alienation to God, and from the wrath of God. We were by nature children of wrath. Why does this matter? Because if you're not a Christian today, this is you. There's no neutral zone here, no Switzerland. If you're not alive in Christ, you are dead in Adam. And here is where we see our need for the gospel. The gospel comes to people at their worst Maybe you sit here today, you say, I feel disqualified. I'm a failure. I'm unattractive. I've been sinned against, and I've sinned myself against other people. It's both and. The gospel is not for success stories. The gospel is not for people that say, I've made it. I've got the American dream. Now let me just cash in the rest. The gospel is not only for beautiful people or for people with a high IQ. It's not only for those who have achieved much. It's for those who are beautiful from the world's standards and ugly, for those who are wealthy and who are poor, for those who are dead. The gospel is for dead people. Dear Christian, redemption and sovereign grace come to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are either a condemned covenant breaker in Adam or a justified covenant keeper in Christ. Why did Jesus come, children, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world? He came, his name, Jesus, to save his people from their sins. You don't pre-qualify for this. But God, Ephesians 2, God did it all. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when what? We were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved. Total depravity is brought to an end by God. We were objects of God's wrath, but God had mercy on us. We were dead, and dead people don't rise, but God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves to sin, but God raised us up with Christ. In Christ, God is for you not against you. If you're a Christian, the doctrine of total depravity should keep you and me humble. We have nothing to boast about. We deserve hell. We didn't save ourselves. This magnifies the sovereign grace of God. God is merciful and gracious to us, sinful enemies. When you love the unbeliever you live with in your home, when you share the gospel with your friend or family member or neighbor, remember they are dead in sin. You can't save them. Salvation is not about us making a choice by our will to be saved. Yes, we call all people in all nations to faith and repentance, But God alone changes the dead heart. We tell, yes, the unbeliever, look to Jesus for salvation. And we pray, God, bring them to faith in Christ. We tell them there is abundant hope in God's sovereign mercy for sinners. Grace, it's demerited favor. It's not something put into you. It's God's favor to you in Christ. It's all of God through all of Christ for all of his elect. Grace was merited for us by Jesus. Grace alone. Grace means we need a perfect righteousness to be saved. You wonder what that means. Come tonight. That's where we're headed, the Lord willing, as we look at this very gospel-encouraging doctrine we need the alien righteousness of Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became man, the perfect image of God, the one who perfectly reflected God in every way, in his work, doing the work Adam failed to do, keeping the covenant of works, being the mediator for you in the covenant of grace, confirming you in eternal righteousness. The wonder of dust to glory the wonder of our first creation when we were dignified by God, and the greater glory of restoration to glory in Jesus reminds us this is how the Bible unfolds. Creation, fall. Redemption, consummation. It is the grace of God that the canons of Dort were all about. Loved ones, it is by grace you have been saved, Through faith, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this salvation is not a result of our works. It is all a result of the works of Jesus. Father, humble us this day and conform your people more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would find rest for our anxious, weary souls in Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.